0: Time with family, friends, or at least FaceTime them, but uh, there is, you know, it, what I love about Thanksgiving is that you have this time to reflect on your year, and, uh, you know, not all years are the same. Have you noticed this yet as you've gotten older? Um, you know, uh, I, have, uh, I have this little thing I we always do as a family, we go back and watch family videos. And then I just went on my phone and I was like, oh, well, why don't we just do a year in review of last year? Because it's just all there. All of our videos, everything, just put it on the TV. And it was was really interesting to watch uh, the things that we forgot that were so great and the things that we forgot that were So terrible. And it was just so good for us to go through and just watch what this last year did. And then we could sit and go, wow, what a a year um, that we had as a family and what God has done in our life. And, um, man, I I just think when we take those times to sit and reflect and, and appreciate, we give God glory for what he's done, no matter what your year looked like. And I know some of your years, and I know some of them, it's like, man, I'm really looking for the gratitude. And I know some of them, it's been a year of real change and growth in your life. And But I, I would just like to encourage you to be in that mindset this whole season. Because what we're going to do in this series is something similar to that. We are going to learn so much about what it meant when Christ came. You know, you know, just said... Um, I'm going to talk to her about it later, that we've heard this all before, but I'm going to be like, no, 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 we, we can never stop hearing this. We, we must never stop hearing the fact that Christ came and it revolutionized our life and changed our life. When we look back, just like I did with Thanksgiving, you look back at your life and you see, oh, there you are, Jess, you didn't do a bad thing, but it was just more of like, you know, like when we look back and we go, man, what, what. What Jesus has done in our life year after year after year after year, and seeing the change in our life, it's, it brings about gratitude, and that's what we hope this series does. Um, before I get to, to, to the sermon, I want to get into some church business here. Um, uh, Michigan beat Ohio State yesterday. <laughs> And and John Braithwaite and I, one of our elders, have been talking smack because he is an Ohio man and I'm a Michigan man. And uh, I was really offended by the broadcaster when they announced the game. They said, and here we have today, Michigan and the world-famous Ohio State Buckeyes. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I watched the game. I was, you know, holding myself together and... It was uh, fascinating because I wanted to so badly, John, John, where are you, John, I wanted to so badly text you and say a lot of things, you know what I mean, just to reinforce our friendship. And so, just to let you know where we stand in this relationship now that Michigan destroyed Ohio State. And... um, And then I was reminded of my sermon title, so you can throw that up, because it was really difficult for me, which is humility personified. (laughs) Oh, it was really tough. You know, it was funny because as I was thinking about it, I'm just so proud, but then then so many uh, arrogant things wanted to come out, of which I did nothing to earn other than being born there. And... You know, that idea of humility, of, not, of being able to live in a way that Christ lived his life is so difficult to do. And, and, and in our culture today where, unfortunately, arrogance is praised and promoted, humility is unfortunately sometimes looked down upon. We, we do say it as a corporate value, but most rarely ever lived out. Um, or rewarded. And so I I just titled this message Humility Personified. As we get ready to study one of these songs, the one we just sang, I hope that by the end of the message, when we sing this song, you will deeply grasp what was being spoken about in that song. And we will truly, truly see the meaning of this song and why it was written and what we can gain from it every time we listen to this song. You know, the song's played all throughout stores and all around. It's on our holiday playlist. And after studying these songs and and studying this song, it gave me such a deep appreciation for what is being communicated at a conscious and unconscious level to people who are listening. You know, they're decorating their house, but they're hearing the gospel. That song is full of the gospel. We're going to look at it in a second. But, you know, I want ultimately for this message is, for all of us to rediscover the divine character of God. That's what the song's about. Rediscovering the divine character of God and his people. So when we, take, when we look at the character of God and he's made us in his image and we're called to walk like Christ, we then also want to take upon that character that God displays so brightly in the birth of Christ And I think that's important for us. And so my prayer will definitely be this, that we experience a deep revelation of Christ's humility. And as his people, we then have a deep revelation of what humility means in our lives as believers. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you, God, for leaders like Charles who wrote this song, this hymn, God, uh, packed full of theology, packed full of the gospel, but ultimately honoring the fact that you came. And God, that Advent is not just a a nice time, but God, it is the time that the world changed and our world changed. And so God, help us never stop honoring the sacrifice you made for the world and for us. We are all the better for it and we have eternal hope. Where we had none before. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The song that we're studying, our song of hope, you have it on your card there. It is Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. I never appreciated this song. I didn't. I always was just like, every time I I grew up Catholic and we would pull out the hymnal and we'd sing the song, it was like I didn't like hymns anyways. And it was just like, it just did. It wasn't about it, okay? I just didn't want to do it. I couldn't keep up with the lyrics. I was like, why is it skipping three lines? I hated hymnals, right? And I never really truly appreciated the song. I just took it as background music. But I got to tell you a little bit. I'm going to do a few things. We're going to talk about the author. We're going to talk about the structure of the song, the theology of the song. And we're going to talk about, uh, in a way, unpacking the main part of the song that's hidden right in a lyric you might just sing by it, you know, which was the intention of the author that we know it. And then we're going to talk about how this can impact us today in our life. So the first thing is our author is Charles Wesley. Now, you probably know John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. Charles was his brother. They were two boys of 19 children. Same mom, <laughs> Okay. And, but I mean, sadly, in this time, not like our time now, where we 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 can make it through childbirth, that uh, nine of them didn't even make it, right? So it was just the ten, and these two boys were extraordinary in their changing of the world. So we don't really fully associate or appreciate it, but even the United States what we have as far as our faith, and sometimes we take for granted the, the theology that we have that we can embrace so boldly and loudly, these two men pioneered a lot of the change that we and now just easily accept. You know, it, it, the, these boys were born in England, and their dad was a preacher, and their dad was a, a powerful preacher, but they grew up pretty much impoverished, right? They didn't make very much money. They had to just get by. It was their mother, the sweet mother, who really instilled the principles in their life, the, the method, if you will, which Methodist Church comes from eventually, the method of which they practiced their faith. It was almost systematic, and it was, de- it was a devoted faith in making sure that they were living up to the principles Of Christ, right? In England at this time, I think this is why it's so important to know by the time in the mid-1700s when this song was written, England was a rough time. There was a view that kind of got distorted that even John Calvin wouldn't even appreciate that was basically Uh, The elect selected those who would go on to heaven and those who were not going to go on to heaven. And it had begun to get distorted under, under the Anglican church at the time, which has changed a lot since then. And it has become like a way of like, how do you know if someone's elect and what they would do, which we can sometimes do, is we would go, well, if they're making lots of money and if they're prominent, then they're probably elect. And if you're poor and you're not doing well in life, then you weren't blessed and you probably weren't elect, which means you were doomed to go to hell. And these were just automatically ushered into heaven. And so there became a huge disparity between those who were and had and those who had not. And so, at this time, there was this constant tension of those who were the outs. Now, imagine if you, living and hearing that you were born to die and burn in hell and had no chance of ever going to heaven, how would you live your life? England was a really rough time at that time. The alcoholism was through the roof. abandonment of children was through the roof literally. People would have children and throw them over a wall. They didn't want to have to even deal with those kids. They, they could barely afford to eat. People were constantly, constantly just devolving in the way that they lived their life. And they would watch the ones who were chosen living their life. This was a huge problem. It was sad because it almost went back to what the tension was in the first century, which we've just studied extensively, of those who were born to have salvation and those who weren't. And here we are again, thousands plus years later, the same struggle is is happening then. And so this is the time of which these boys are growing up into ministry. Both of John and Charles, who wrote the song, went to Oxford. But uh, but Charles joined a group called this Holiness group, and there was uh, a movement within the, the University of Oxford of this group. They eventually asked John to come and help lead that group. And what happened was, is people began to just call them the Methodists, and it stuck because they were so meticulous in their method in their system about following and being true followers of Christ. England at this time was going through a lot, even the, even Europe. It was experienced a little bit of a, a revelation, an awakening of maybe that God isn't so far distant off, but maybe more present with us, more interested in humanity than they thought. I, I put this picture up here, this picture, uh, this uh, painting from Rembrandt uh, in the late 1600s was kind of the, the beginning of the mindset of art even changing that that God was very much human and personal. These are real people. You know, like the old paintings, like the Sistine Chapel, they're like superheroes, you know what I mean, with the thing around their head, and it felt very not human. Rembrandt was probably one of the first, through his influence of the Reformation, began to see people differently. So the art was changing people, and the music was beginning to change people, which Charles was one of those big people. Charles was an interesting man because he didn't want to do ministry. He wanted to be a professor. But John, his brother, had convinced him that the mission field was ripe right and they needed to go. So he convinced him to go to America and begin to evangelize these colonies. It didn't go well. They came back and they had to regroup. But what I appreciated about Charles was he was somebody who had an ability to write poems. Now all these hymns that we are singing, these are poems, and Charles was a prolific poem writer. But what I love about Charles, and I didn't really appreciate as much, especially getting to know him more, is that he was an incredible preacher. He ministered nonstop. He was an unbelievable. Maybe even some said better than his brother John, who's famous. John was a great leader, Charles was a great preacher, and he would get up, and he wouldn't even at some point go up without even any notes, and he would just preach. Thousands sometimes would come and hear them. It got to be so much at some point that, you know, they had to even just go outdoors, but there was a moment for both of them, Charles, and I think this is so important for us to hear as a church, because we can get caught up in this stuff, and it's destructive, there was a moment when they had, they call it their salvation moment, their conversion. Now these are pastors going out and preaching in the mission fields. And they had something flipped around. Their theology was messed up. And what happened was is their idea of salvation came through sanctification, meaning that you're beginning to just walk in the footsteps of Christ and eventually that you might be saved. Where Martin Luther Pushed forward this idea that there was justification right through faith alone, meaning that you were justified to stand before God, your sins were wiped clean, you were you were uh, brought you be uh, you'd spend eternity with God, your salvation was sealed through faith alone, and they had it reversed. It was justification through sanctification, but they had a revelation through some people in their life where they begin to see it differently, and their theology changed. It literally changed their entire life. I think it's relevant for believers today because there are a lot of people still on the track of works towards righteousness, and you might have it flipped the other way around like they did then. Well, they had an awakening in their life, Charles first, then John. And what happened was they realized that actually justification, right, first, and then came sanctification, and I don't know, to us that might be like, duh. <laughs> you know what I mean maybe it is that way. But to them in that culture where it was basically going to church for church's sake, religion for religion's sake, do these things and let's hope this angry God doesn't punish you in the end, it revolutionized their entire life. It didn't make them lazy. It made them more driven. And so they started preaching, and they get kicked out of churches. Even though it was within the Anglican bylaws, the the, the justification by faith. But it wasn't practiced and it wasn't taught. And so they would go into a church like this and then people would kick them out of the church. Pretty soon they were locked out of almost every church in England. They were not allowed to speak. So they started going outside. And John Wesley said this. He said, I feel like it's sin to preach to people outdoors, (laughs) which is crazy. But it was just this way of doing the things that they did. But then someone said, well, didn't Jesus preach outside? And he's like, oh, I I guess so. And so he started these movements of thousands and thousands of people coming and hearing the good news, right? There was a huge problem, though, that the church, established church at that time, uh, did not like what they were doing. And people were leaving those churches in groves. And poor people. Lost people, people who had no hope were coming and listening to the message and experiencing salvation. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we think about persecution as coming from outside the church. This persecution came from within the church itself. They would be preaching and people would throw bricks at them. Right, they'd be beat up by mobs. I can't even imagine this. One time, they were got inside of a building. They were preaching. (laughs) This is new. I've never heard of this. This is next level. I mean, they put a raging bull and released it inside of the church, and it went crazy throughout the congregation. I don't even know. Like we, we had somebody faint in church the other day, and we were like, "Oh, what are we gonna do? Let's get protocol." I, I don't even understand that type of persecution. It was very, very difficult. Everywhere they went, there were riots when they would preach because what they were doing was so different. But it literally began to change the landscape of the church, and ultimately over here, their message—justification through faith alone. Charles was a great pastor, and you can hear it in his in, in his songs, in his hymns. He was a he was a wonderful pastor. He decided I'm going to go into the prisons like Christ would want me to, and I'm going to preach to the prisoners. Now. Going into the prisons and preaching that you can have salvation. Because to them, they had been written off and they wrote themselves off is that they will die and never see God. And he preaches this. And these people, before they went to die, Charles would ride with every one of them on the wagon on the way over before they were hung in the public square. And he would sit with them and he told them, I'll be with every one of you as you go to die. He was a great pastor, a wonderful pastor. To, to so many people. His legacy is he wrote revolutionary theological hymns. Before Charles, they were singing hymns only based on psalms. They were not singing any more than that. What he realizes is that we need to sing about the resurrection. Just like Hark the Herald Angels said, we need to think about, sing about the incarnation. We need to sing about justification. We need to sing about salvation. And so all these hymns started coming forward then. Charles wrote 10,000 hymns. That's a hymn a day for the entirety of his ministry for 50 years. He was a prolific hymn writer. Someone said that if we had lost the Bible, you could take Charles's hymns and reconstruct the Bible through his hymns. He was very theological on how he approached everything. And so we're going to talk about Hark the Herald Angels things. He wrote this, and his mindset was, I want to... Feel like I'm there with those angels. I want to feel like I was present during the incarnation. I want people who sing it to feel that they were there too, and that's why the song feels and moves people in such a way. So we're going to look at the structure of this in just a little bit. Um, if you could put up on the screen here, Chad, uh, th- this is the first part of the structure of the song—the part you just sang. I haven't read there. These are the uh, scripture links to which Charles pulled these from to write these lyrics. I'll go through these very briefly. Like when he talks about a newborn king, he's referencing Luke 2, where the Bible says glory to God in the highest, right? He is now born. We're celebrating this new king. God and sinners are reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Born in Bethlehem, we know that one. And you go down into uh, verses two. It says, "Christ, the everlasting Lord." Right? Jesus is Lord in Philippians two. That's the title that Paul gives Jesus, Lord. And in speaking of Jesus in Isaiah nine six, he's the is the one of his names is the Eternal Father. Late in time, behold, he came. It's speaking in First Peter um, one twenty, where it says. He foreknew before the foundations of the world. He has appeared in these last days for the sakes for you, right? And Hebrews is another reference, but offspring of Mary, uh, uh, the virgin womb, we know that. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, meaning that's in Hebrews 10, 19. He inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Speaking of Jesus in one uh, John 1:14, the world, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Hail the incarnate deity is Colossians 2:9. All the fullness of the deity dwells in the bodily form. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel in Matthew. One twenty-three. hail the heaven-born prince of peace one of the names given in isaiah 9 6 of the messiah would be the prince of peace hail the son of righteousness and uh, malachi 4 uh, 2 the son of righteousness will rise it says life and death to all he brings there's oh, our life, sorry, light and life to all he brings. Uh, uh, it's in um, Isaiah nine verse one. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. You and I, and those who live in, in in the dark land, the light will shine on them. John eight one twelve. I am the light of the world. Jesus says. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Charles is pulling from. Risen with healing wings. Back to Malachi 4.2. It says, he, uh, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by. Jesus says, I am gentle of heart and humble of heart. And my burden is light. And he goes on to say, but in Philippians 2, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. Born that man may uh, no more die, may die. And that's in Hebrews 2. It says that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. John eleven twenty five. 25, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Born to raise the sons of earth, 2 Corinthians 4, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and born to give a second birth. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says in John three, unless one is born again, he cannot seek see the kingdom of heaven. Galatians four four that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Now, when you look at the the, the breakdown of that song, you can feel the rich scripture. In theology in it. You can f- see the gospel being presented in just this song that we just kind of hear in the background. This is why I appreciate it so much, you know that it is a, a Christmas classic that's beautifully done to present the gospel. But Charles wrote it, I don't think just as evangelistic, but he wrote it as like, why wouldn't we celebrate in such a way with these angels that Christ came? Humbly, and brought salvation to us. There's one lyrical note in there that I want to focus on for just the portion of the message in its theological roots. The standout is this one. You might have just read it by, but it was mild he lays his glory by. When Charles said he was writing this, this hymn, he wanted to embody the incarnation and the joy we should celebrate and who Christ was, and the humility that he displayed in coming to earth. Now remember, this is Jesus. So when we talk about humility, we, could, we, we, we term humility differently. But this is Jesus. None of us have been at this position in life. None of us ever would even be able to imagine what Jesus laid down so he could pick us up. He is the beginning and the end. In the beginning, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God and of God. He's the name above all names. And he didn't need to do it, but he did. This is humility. He chose love, and he operates in humility. I remember I had a a guy I worked with, and he was... He would always tell his testimony, and God bless him, his testimony. But when he'd tell his testimony, I just was like, ugh. Um, (laughs) I don't mean this in a bad way, because just as part of his testimony, he'd go around and he'd say, like, yeah, I was going to, you know, I was looking at these college teams to play basketball, and, and I was getting all these offers, you know. But one day, the Lord just called me and said, you're not called to play basketball. You're called to sing. And I remember hearing it, and I was like, A, I played basketball with you. I know you didn't get scholarship offers. B, uh, this isn't some great sacrifice you made. We like to compare those types of things like, like the humility of Jesus. We can't even relate to what Jesus laid down to pick up. I was listening to this preacher and actually studying this sermon, and this preacher said something that just kind of set me a little off. He was younger and he was talking about Christ emptying himself. And he said, Yeah, I was like me, you know, I I just, um," he was a bullfighter and he said, You know, I just, Didn't want to come to Christ and didn't want to pick up my calling. And and so God God, uh, ended up uh, 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 using bullfighting. I got severely injured and he he ended up taking away all of my athletic ability. And then it put me to a place where it was just like, okay, God, I'll do what you ask. And I'm like, that's not how God does that. You just got hurt. You know, God doesn't take away your athletic ability to force you to do something. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus wasn't forced to lay down everything. He chose to lay down for you, for love, out of humility. Uh, These false humility stories I just have a hard time with because they they don't even compare. We can't even understand what Jesus laid aside. It's like when the rich young ruler in, in Mark 10 He comes to Jesus. He's like, I've done this. I've done this. I'm so good. I I am such a good person. I do all of these things. And Jesus is like, you want to lay down like me? me? And, And at least in just a fraction like it? Why don't you give away everything that you have and give it to the poor? And he just couldn't do it. He didn't understand humility. He wanted to justify his humility. But he couldn't do it because his desire to pour it out, he just couldn't do it. We can experience what the rich young ruler experiences. And we Sometimes we don't grasp fully the humility we're called to and to, to, to be a part of it as believers. So let's read that part. Mild he lays his glory by. This is referencing Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're going to read it and we're actually going to study Philippians 2, sorry, 1 through 11. Paul, in this time, in the context, you thought you were going to get away from Paul. You're not getting away from Paul. At the time and the context in this city, in Philippi, there is disunity. This is how he starts his letter. There is infighting, because, you know, church people, they never fight internally, right? There was possible split situations. And Paul wants to get ahead of the problem and writes this letter. And this is the context in which he's writing this letter, just so we all understand. There is selfishness, and there is Fear because Nero is persecuting Christians and they're scared. And Paul is actually in prison writing this through persecution. He says in Philippians 2:1, when we think about that, mild he lays his glory by. Philippians 2:1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, now he's speaking to them as a whole, but he's going to get to them individually. Any affection and sympathy to complete my joy by being in the same mind, meaning that let's get in the same mind together, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why is Paul so worried about this? Why is he concerned about this? So as he's about ready to drop a theological bomb on them in a second, he wants to make sure that they understand the importance of unity. And before he brings his greatest case to why they need to humbly walk within the church and why they need to be in unity and why they need to put away fear and selfishness and why they need to stop the bickering, is ultimately because of their witness and That's not my car. Okay, and and ultimately so that they can be the light that they were called to be, but it will only be through humility that they can shine that bright because that's what it will take to shine the way Christ shined. And he says this, being in full accord and of one mind. Here we go. Doing nothing from selfish ambition. You know what that word means for its original word? And, and, and how they translated it, it's simple how we have it here, but really it's very complicated, that word. And it means all kinds of things you can translate. Read different translations in your Bible, you'll read that word differently. But really what it is, is very questionable behavior and motives. Very questionable. Suspect. And this is running rampant right now within the church. Or conceit. This word conceit is used in many manuscripts outside of the Bible in in ancient history, and it means empty glory. (laughs) Empty glory. Someone who is is, is glorifying themselves, but there's nothing there. It's empty. They're patting themselves on the back so hard, their arm is breaking. You know what I mean? There's nothing there. I think Christmas and Advent is is a reminder, I think, to us. Uh, uh, of humility actually in action, which is Jesus. Humility actually in play. And it reminds us as believers as Christ poured himself out, emptied himself for us is an act of true humility because none of us can understand or grasp what he laid down for us. It's bigger than my friend with his guitar or the guy who lost his athletic ability. Jesus chose to do For us, it reminds us of humility in action. I was uh, reading this quote. I I Google typed this. I was like, most arrogant quotes from the most arrogant people. You know, when you have time on your hands. And I came across one. There was a lot, but there's a guy who I remember as a kid, and I don't know why, but these center around the era of the 80s. So, millennials, you're safe. This is for the Gen Xers. (laughs) David Lee Ross said this Seriously, I don't have any rivals. Listen, this, this is the mentality I think sometimes that has crept into our culture that has made people so arrogant. He says, you can't have me in a second-rate impressionist or impersonation of me and telling me that, there's my, that they're my rival. No contest. There's such a thing as being original. Without it, no matter how good the impersonation, you're nothing. I would say that's pretty arrogant. There are no rivals. I mean, have you ever seen David Lee Ross music? There are a lot of rivals. (laughs) Iggy Pop, another uh, one. And you know what? When he says what he says, I think a lot of people are like, that's self-care. That's self-love. That's such a good thing. I don't think so. I stare at myself in the mirror and I think, wow, I'm really good looking. (laughs) I think I'm the greatest anyways. (laughs) I think about just this mentality, is arrogance that we can kind of get on our high horse and we lose sight and we actually lose witness because what Jesus modeled of who he is is humility. And as believers, if you take on the name Christian, you take on humility. You don't have an option if you want to represent Jesus. This is what I appreciate about Charles. And when he wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, these boys were humbled over and over and over and over again. And their humility led them to the least of these. That's what humility does. I was looking at this website for fathers, and it was talking about how fathers don't come, how you can come across not being arrogant. I wasn't doing my own search. It was for a friend. And uh, here's a couple of them that stood out. Fathers, to not say these things because you will come across as arrogant to your family. I know you're wrong because I'm right. Now (laughs) ah, I was convicted on all these. I wasn't really listening to you just now. (laughs) It's easy. I don't get why you're struggling. Oof. Any intelligent person would agree with me. It's common sense. I'm an expert in in fill-in-the-blank. And you've probably never read, but it's so easy to come out of our mouth. It's so easy to want to project something that maybe we're not. We're projecting empty glory. True glory is in humility, and that humility doesn't, that glory doesn't come to you. It goes right to God. True glory. Jesus embodied that. And I think that's what Charles was trying to say in his song. Let's go back to Philippians. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but the interest of others. Oh, true humility is a person who is concerned about the other. You should write that down. It's a good one. That's really true. That's when you know true humility. Want to know why? Because Jesus is true humility. And what was his concern? For himself or for the other? True humility. and Paul is trying to instill this in the church. If you're going to shine like Jesus, if you're going to represent Jesus, then you must look out for the interest of the other. I think this is true. I wrote this out probably the best way I could think about it. Those relying on God so deeply, like Paul is encouraging them to do and he himself is striving to do, are themselves freed up to look after the interests of others. Jesus was so confident in who he was and God that he could easily look out for the interests of others. When we are not confident about who we are and to whom we belong, I can understand why we're very self-obsessed with our life and worry about ourselves. But Jesus was very confident in relying on God uh, I think when you are truly relying on God, you are free to look at the interest of others. I think this is the cure for selfish ambition and conceit, is to look at the interest of others. We know this in our relationships in our, with our husbands and wives. We know that this our relationship with our kids. It, it, when we are looking for their interest, we actually shine very bright, and it would take humility to do it. Okay, I'm going to go really fast is having this mind among our yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and here's where he drops this theological bomb, the, Through though he was in the form of God, meaning that everything he is, is, is God. That's what that word means in its original. Do not count, uh, did not count equally with God. A thing to be grasped, meaning it's not even in the nature of God to consider what He would have to what He would have to give up, because His very nature is humility and love. So, therefore, why wouldn't He do what He did? And I think Paul is pointing this out because every ruler and leader in the the the, the time that He lived in, and maybe even maybe now, is that they they are trying to hang on to what they have. And they'll fight to keep what they have. And they would never give it up because it would cost them. And and Paul says it wasn't even a thing for him to even entertain. It says, but he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He poured himself out to us. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And Paul is trying to instill this in his listeners, like the church then and now, obedient to the point of death, even to the cross. The cross was such a humiliating form of punishment. It was only for those who were the lowest and the vile of society. And he says, even to the point of being humiliated that much, Jesus poured himself out for us. He chose to do that. It wasn't ripped from him. He is the ultimate embodiment of humility in the incarnation of Christ. This is why Charles is writing, to celebrate that this moment changes the world and it needs to be glorified. Right? You know, the cross is interesting because when I was looking back, I was thinking of all the things that were meant for mockery, the gospel turns them as a symbol of strength like the cross even the term methodist was a mockery term for charles and john i was reading about uh, a trial that took place at around the same time of the leader of what was now known as the quakers And that term came from a judge who was sentencing him to prison. And and, and the leader of the Quakers said, "You're, you're going to be shaken by what you're doing by God. And the judge says, you're the one quaking. And this is how the term Quakers came about. Not from the oatmeal. It came from mockery. And they took that name upon them. God takes these things of shame and turns them into a name. And so now we hold our cross proud. Because God did something that no one could do through the lowest thing, made something Unbelievable. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, meaning this every authority will bow. Because that's what you do when you came into a higher authority in heaven and earth and underneath the earth. Meaning people, those who have already died. And every tongue that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they needed to hear that because there was only one Lord at that time and that was Lord Nero. And they were afraid. And Paul is saying even Nero will bow before Jesus because he is the true Lord. To glorify God the Father, Paul keeps this Trinitarian language in place, meaning he didn't elevate Jesus above God. He put him in the Trinitarian, you know, right way. The last thing is this. So we talk about that phrase, mild, he lay it down. But. Let's talk about its impact today for us. I think just like today, humility in Rome was a joke. It wasn't praised. It wasn't honored. It wasn't promoted. But that's not the way that God promotes. God promotes differently. self aggrandizing selfish ambition. I think they've plagued us since the time of Adam. That's what led to the fall was self-ambition. Right? Wanted to be like God. It plagues our world. Humility, Christ, when we see Jesus coming as this little baby, it's not insignificant. It's how God led the recovery of this world through humility. I think you dishonor humility with self-aggrandizing and selfish ambition. You dishonor what humility is when we act in those ways, those motives that are hidden that are not good. And those empty glories we give ourselves. But I will say this, you crush selfish ambition and self-aggrandizing with humility. That's how you destroy it, by walking humbly. And Christ did that so well. I think Paul is addressing the community church issue, but he's also dealing with the individual. So he's saying, listen, if you want to be the light, you got to shine bright yourself first. And the whole community needs to shine bright in humility. Why fight? Why bicker? Why position? Why try to one-up? Why why play that game? I'll kind of close with these things. It's important to know God's character correctly, especially humility. And I'm going to say something that's going to sound hard to hear, and I don't want you to take it like works. But I do think this is that it, it's important to know his character because acting in opposition to that character is promoting a fallen nature and a fallen world and a fallen system. So we must challenge ourselves do I want to be contributing to what Christ came and died to, to, to really save this world from or do I want to be a part of what Christ is doing bringing redemption to the world Jesus dealt with fallen nature I love this in in real time in mark 10 just after the rich young ruler told Jesus he couldn't give it in John 10. Uh, John and Mark, or James and Mark, or, or, or uh, sorry, James and Johns are talking about, hey Jesus, we need to talk to you. I want to sit on the right. Can you sit on the left? And we want to be with you. We want to rule together. And I think Jesus gives them what we would call now, in our terms, a growth opportunity experience. Meaning He's going to rebuke them, right? He's going to allow them to see something. Their arrogance is getting away from them. Their eyes are becoming big. They're lacking humility. And in real time, Jesus calls them out. He says, and then uh, when the 10 heard it, they began, to be kind of, they began to be indignant at James and John, meaning that here starts the infighting within the own discipleship group. This is how it starts. Right? The lack of humility. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know those that are uh, considered rulers of the Gentiles, Lord, over them. And their great, uh, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. So whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be the first amongst you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's putting them into perspective. Paul is doing this with the Philippian crowd, and we have to do this today. We came to serve and to serve, not to be served. The lasting impression Jesus leaves them is the foot washing. And, and, and he washes their feet. This is the last act of modeling Jesus does for them so that they can have this impression. And we can too. His last words, essentially. This is what he does. He washes their feet and he pulls them aside. Says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for, for so I am. If then you're Lord and teacher, meaning that if I am doing this, And have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example so that you should do just as I have done. Truly I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master. And how dare we ever think we can get ahead of our master. Jesus modeled humility during Advent season. We should really practice that. And during this song, when we sing it, let's reflect on that gratitude we have that he came in all humility. He personified it. I think Jesus poured himself out, and we are called to pour ourselves out. It's easy to get caught up and think about yourself, even, especially even in this season. When it's a season of giving, it, a lot of times it's a season of thinking about ourselves. But Christ called us to walk in humility. How can you do that? I have an easy answer. Consider others' interests more than your own. You will accomplish it. So ask God, God, help me, help me. Every day. Consider other people's interests more than my own. I think this is what what, what Jesus was able to do, of course. I think this is what Paul is trying to attempt to do. Why he can sing and shout in prison and sing songs in the most difficult times is because it's that thing we talked about a few weeks ago. When you know who you are, you know what to do. And so secure yourself in who you are and who Jesus is, and you will be able to easily look to the interests of others. So let's pray. God, as we sing this song, and God, as we are going to take a very common Christmas song, but really engage into what is being sung, and God, help us like Charles was trying to do himself of bring himself to the moment of the birth, the arrival of the Messiah, who emptied himself out, poured himself out, chose humility and love so that he could raise us with him. And so, God, we thank you as we go about this season. Help us be mindful of humility, that we are looking at the interest of the other and to walk in that same way Christ was looking